0: Welcome this afternoon for the journey of the spirit. Today we have Swami. Good enough. Thank you. Here to message with you. us, be hopefully a avenue or a portal to help us bring us closer to a higher power and our love. Thank you. Thank you. So I mm-hmm. apologize for being late, and I understand that some of you have to leave at at five. So I'll uh, try to speak briefly and um, share with you, as I've been asked, as far as I can understand, a perspective on uh, shakti tattva or energy as um, understood by the tradition of Gaudiya Vedanta. It's a devotional school of Vedanta. Veda means knowledge and Anta means conclusion, so a kind of a path dedicated to coming to a conclusive knowledge and understanding of the nature of being and so forth. And the angle that uh, is arrived at by the tradition I a Gaudiya Vedanta. So the angle, the adjective Gaudiya speaks of a devotional understanding of ultimate reality in which there's an ongoing exchange between finite and infinite love, we call it. And so with regard to shakti, shakti means energy. So for energy there must be an energetic and the the two are one and different at the same time. It's like we have energy by which we do things, by which we accomplish things, by which we are known actually better by people who know our energy and what we do than by people who know of us but don't know what we do. So the implication on that metaphysical level is that by understanding the shakti of Brahman or the shakti-mān, the energetic source, uh, we can uh, most completely and comprehensively know the source. And so, drawing from the Upanishads, our tradition likes to cite a particular aphorism, Shakti, vibhidaye vishribyate, about the nature of the source, shakti-mān, parasya shakti bibhidhaiva shriyate It's possessed of innumerable shaktis so where will we begin then if we are to try to come to a comprehensive understanding of the nature of being by the methodology of becoming familiar with the absolutes the energetics energy where will we begin? Unlimited energies so we thought we were Closing in on them here, <laughs> but there are so many. Nonetheless, there's another statement that the tradition draws to from the Upanishads, very abstract um, text, to the Puranas, which kind of take that abstract text and put it into a narrative and make it a little easier to understand. There's a nice text from there that helps us to sort out our approach of understanding the energy of the energetic. By breaking it down, that energy into three principal energies. So, statement goes something like this: Vishnu Shakti Para Prakta, avidya karma Sangayam So, the name of Brahman or the, the Great One, the Absolute, in the Upanishads comes down to the Puranas, and the name is given Vishnu. Vishnu Shakti, Para Vishnu means all pervading. So. Whatever it is we're after is everywhere. (laughs) And uh, makes it that much more difficult, I suppose, to to find and to understand. But at any rate, the statement is Vishnu Shakti Paraprokta, Shetra Gyakya Tatapara, and Abhidhyakarma Sanghaya. Tuti means three, so Tuti Shakti Ishete. It is said Ishete, Tuti Shakti Ishete, that the Vishnu is possessed of three primary energies. So, what are they? There's the uh, Vishnu Shakti Parā. Parā means like superior. So there's a superior energy. And there's shetra gyat para This is interesting. The second one is kind of a intermediate energy, but it's also parā, but intermediate. Parā means like supreme. There's a distinguishing word here in this text because the third one is called avidya karma. You've heard of the word karma, and avidya means the ignorance that the karmic predicament finds us in. You know, we are pretty tangled up and we don't know how to sort it all out, where it's all come from and why we, why we suffer when we don't want to, and the kind of general answer is, well, this is a long, long history. In a word, that history is karma, and um, it's kind of like quicksand. The more you move, the more you go down. So difficult to sort out and find our way out of the predicament of ignorance. This is the inferior Shakti. So we've got an inferior Shakti, we've got an in- intermediate Shakti and a superior shakti. And the uh, intermediate Shakti is also called para with it, as the superior one was, but with a caveat, that it's para or it's superior because it's also conscious in nature. It's of the nature of consciousness, as is the superior. Like a ray of the sun is constituted of light, just as the sun is. So there's some similarity, but there's a difference too. The difference is that it's one thing to stand in the ray of the sun, another thing to be in the sun, planet. And another difference is that the sun if we were to compare this in the analogy I'm giving to the Para shakti the superior shakti, that's all consciousness, never comes under the influence of the cloud. But the ray of sun could. And that cloud is the avidya karma. And the ray is intermediate, and we are constituted of the ray. We can play in either field. We can live below the cloud and not even know the sun exists and even be in such ignorance that we can deny our own origin, although we're never separated from it, we can't see it anywhere or trace it out, or we philosophize it away even, it can be get so bad. <laughs> or we can live above the cloud in concert with the sun. So, let me talk a little bit then about these 3 Could to start with the one that we're primarily under the influence of, Avidya-karma a huge huge influence that has uh, practically speaking no no beginning but it can come to an end. It's um, understood in the tradition to be itself constituted of three basic kind of influences. They're called gunas. Guna means also means rope, so like strands of a rope. And the rope is a good translation of the word guna because it has a binding effect. So we're bound by this avidya karma, shakti, like um, we would be by a rope and three strands, so it's like we're pretty tied up by it. The sacred text, they describe this avidya karma in, in terms of these gunas, these strands of the uh, rope of bondage on two levels it describes it on a physical level and on a psychic level. That means the influence of avidya karma on a physical level and a psychic level, which means we're constituted, materially speaking, of physical sense of being and a psychic sense of being. And both of these, the psychic, the physical and the corresponding psychic manifestation of self that we are familiar with, both of these are constituted of this avidya karma. The two are real different in a lot of ways. I mean, the the possibilities that lie in the physical realm are very limited in comparison to those that we can find in in the psychic realm, the mental realm. For example, if I was to ask anyone in the room to take everything in this room with you, out the door, carry it out physically in one trip, it would not be possible for us to do it. But if I was to say, I want you to sit and then take everything with you mentally, it would take a fair amount of mental prowess because there's a lot of nice things in this room, but, but it would be possible. You'd, think, you'd entertain the possibility of, yeah, that could be possible. The point being that the psychic dimension is more spacious, more accommodating. What you can do in the psychic realm, it's easy to make a million dollars in your head, but it's hard to do it in what they call the real world, But which is real. They're both real and unreal, in a sense. And um, we're less, perhaps, or the majority of people are less acquainted with the psychic realm, less familiar with it. I mean, we try to plumb the depths of it in hard and somewhat soft sciences like psychology and and whatnot, and then there are other more subtle methods like yoga and uh, healing and um, you know, traditions that are more acquainted with this. What we would call the subtle body, all the psychic realm. But most people are less familiar with that. And the lack of familiarity with that, and the familiarity with what can be done and can't be done in the physical realm, makes the psychic realm to most people, seem like otherworldly, like way out there, otherworldly. And But what I'm saying tonight, if you will, is it's not that far away, and it's an extended kind of reality beyond the physical reality. But, according to our tradition, it still lies within this lower, inferior Shakti of the Absolute, which, as I say, constituted on two levels, of a physical and a psychic dimension. And so these strands, these ropes, right, that it's divided into its influences, have an impact both on the physical and on the psychic dimension. And these three influences, they're called sattva, rajas, tamas. And um, if we were to translate them with regard to the physical dimension, things, objects, our bodies, you know, the house, uh, the car, if we were to talk about them like that, then they would be maybe translated as intelligibility, movement, and inertia. In other words, all physical objects have something about them by which they can make themselves known, so to speak. They're intelligible. And all physical objects uh, matter. I'm talking about gross matter. It has something to do. It has some movement to it. And the movement that it makes is sometimes impeded by another aspect of itself, which is, maybe we could call it, inertia. So we've got inertia, we've got movement, we've got intelligibility, so this is a way in which the sacred texts in Hinduism and in our Gaudiya tradition have come to talk about matter, like a scientist would examine closely. And, uh, but they take into consideration then this uh, psychic dimension as well, as I say, which in hard science, of course, they wonder if it exists, right? it's all, it can all be reduced, often it's thought just to, to matter, and matter being gross physical stuff. But in our tradition, we see this kind of a division in the avidya karma, shakti, of psychic, as I said, and and physical. So when we go to the psychic realm, then these sattva, rajas, tamas, these three strands of the rope of that karmic influence could be translated as clarity of thought, which gives uh, vision and clear thinking. Let's say clarity, purity, goodness, virtue... And then we go to the rajas, from sattva to rajas. It's like the passion to improve one's condition, to move up the ladder, to attain security, power, you know, money in the bank or something, to give a a cruder example. And then um, the third one, um, ignorance, lethargy, and um, rather than clear thinking which might lead one to think that it's not very... Um, time isn't that well spent trying to climb up the ladder materially. Maybe some scope for that, but that's the whole thing. Clear thinking would take away some of that impetus of rajas. And then of course, as I say, the ignorance, the tamagun. And that under that influence we also think it's not much um, use for climbing up the ladder, but not for the right reason. He becomes a couch potato or something, or comes under the influence of intoxication and is unproductive in in a negative way. I mean to say there may be a way to be unproductive in a positive way, like it's said sometimes, don't just sit there, do something. Or it might be said, don't just do something, sit there. Right? And think for a minute, what are you doing? Why? Why are you so busy? And so forth. So... These influences, then, these threefold influences, these strands of the rope of this avidya karma shakti, that affect us physically and psychically, their influence on us brings about different um, desires, which is the kind of the fire that makes the whole show of this avidya karma shakti, which is like a kind of a big machine, go, makes it run. In other words, in and of itself, it's not. Conscious, and that's why it's not called para, like the other two are the superior and the intermediate. It's matter. It takes on a life, so to speak, when we plug into it. Just like a car, you know, what is it? It's nothing without the driver, right? I've often said that matter, which is both the psychic and physical aspects of it, as I'm talking about it, its entire manifestation the question I like to ask is without consciousness would it matter do you understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's consciousness what matters right yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. and so we're a unit of that consciousness and when we lend our life and life means well it means desire doesn't it? it? means will. Sometimes we talk about free will, but it's, it's really kind of redundant. Is there any will that's, you know, <laughs> against his will? It means he's not doing his will, right? <laughs> so free will, will. Will means... So we're a unit really of, as this para-shakti, or intermediate shakti, that's para, that's conscious. We're a unit of freedom, really. A unit of will, a unit of desire. But, under the influence of avidya karma then certain desires, our will, is influenced. And so we have a certain type of desire. And those desires are not in the interest of our experiencing, as we'd like to, the fullness of the freedom that we are a unit of, and all the possibilities that exist for us. Thinking about all this, incidentally, is really useful for us and possible in human life. I like to say that that's why in human life it's really interesting to think that in human life we want to do everything that every other species can do, practically. We want to fly in the sky. We want to go to the bottom of the ocean. But fish at the bottom of the ocean don't don't think about flying high in the sky. But there's a reason that we want to do that. But we want to do all those things that every other species can do. That's because in human life the consciousness... As we evolve as a conscious entity through different conditions of Avidya Karma to what we call the human form of life, what happens is it's a great moment because we become aware of the fact that that we are. It's not that we weren't previously in a less complex form of life, and there's life everywhere. I mean, what's moving the tree or the tortoise or, you know, it's the crystal and making it grow. There's consciousness. We've already concluded that. Without a consciousness, it doesn't move. It's just like the TV without a viewer, or the car without a driver. So, when we come to this condition of human life where we can discuss these things, we become aware of the fact that we exist. As Descartes would say, Well, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo. So, I mean, it, you know, it's something along these lines. <laughs> but we think we are, and we have a sense also, because we're coming out to a large degree, from the grip of this abhidya karma. The self is coming out and can rethink about itself and it feels itself and it feels it could do anything. It feels it shouldn't be limited by the confines of its physical and psychic realities. So we want to do everything that we sense is possible. Of course, we go about it in a way that you know, we don't fly as good as the bird, we don't swim as good as, as, good as the fish. The point being is that this unit of consciousness that's that intermediate shakti that we're constituted of, is in various conditions of life. And those conditions of life, the psychic and physical conditions, allow it to express itself to one extent or another. So in the bird life it can express itself to some extent, and in the fish life to some extent. In human life there's greater freedom. It's a great opportunity. It's, it's an evolution. It's, it's a less. It's a more complex form of life, and what's complex about it is that consciousness is more manifest, and consciousness is what's free, and alive, not the matter. So it's starting to sense itself, and it, it has possibilities, and it, it doesn't like to admit to that that, that there are limitations, it's, and it's always trying to overcome them, to be itself, but it's going about it. We are going about it in a way that we will only realize that freedom to a limited extent. So, a side point, but my main point is that this is the condition of the intermediate shakti, ourselves, the unit of consciousness, under the influence of that secondary shakti, avidya karma, is such that certain desires will haunt us, so to speak, overcome us, Relative to those strands of the ropes of this Shakti. So, one of those influences or desires to paint it with the broadest brush is the desire to be virtuous, to be good for goodness sake, or, or something like that. And not just so that you'll get, you know, something from Santa, but really just because you want to do it, because it's good. <laughs> for good, for goodness sake. And because it would be good to, to be virtuous, to be secure would be than the other influence, like to have money in the bank, I said. To be secure, to be powerful, to be influential, even if it's for good reason, but to have security. To be virtuous, to have security or to have gratification. To pleasure one's senses. So on the latter, the pleasuring one's senses, which you're probably most addicted to, is the lower end of the spectrum we pleasure our senses and it doesn't always make sense and we regret it later on and we go back and do it again and therefore this is the ignorance influence. And then again, there's that drive for security and stability and uh, so there's the drive to be pleasured. There's the drive to be secure and there's the drive to be, on the higher end, virtuous. But the problem with all these desires... Is they're all a product of the influence of these strands of the rope of avidya karma, and they're all leading us that avidya karma shakti, leading us to believe that we need to be something other than what we are in order to be complete. We're thinking we need to be secure, and we're working for that purpose. We're thinking we need to be virtuous. We're thinking we need to be pleasured when, in fact, if we were actually to unravel ourselves, and there's, of course, a method for doing that, from these strands of the rope of Avidya Karma, we'd find out we are a unit of happiness. Mm-hmm. That we can't add anything on that's made of matter that could possibly improve our situation. We are consciousness. That's matter. All forms of matter are here today and gone tomorrow. How much security can it give us? However big the house is, however big the job is, however beautiful the wife is or husband or supportive the kids are. I mean these are all things we do and, and whatnot, but they are here today and they will be gone tomorrow and if we're looking for real security we won't find it in that in an enduring way. And then of course, virtue. How virtuous can you be? We are all virtuous by nature. And to be virtuous in this world is problematic. To be completely virtuous in a material sense, is just, a, you know, it's how do you do it? How do you sort it all out? You're good over here and hurt somebody over there, even <laughs> if you don't want to, practically. So we're thinking we need to be secure, we need to be pleasured, we need to be virtuous, but we are virtuous by nature. We are secure, and we are a unit of happiness, as they say. If you could take all of the happiness that could be derived from the senses in relation to sense objects, forms, tastes, smells, and sounds, and so forth, and put it in the big syringe and inject it in the self, the real self, all of it anyone could experience, it would, it would be insignificant. As I said, this intermediate shakti that we're constitutive is consciousness, it's freedom. We're talking about two categorically different things here, matter and consciousness. But it's like oil runs on water. but never really mixes. And we're moving with this avidya karma, shakti. But we never really mix with it. We've identified with it. We've energized it, turned on the machine, so to speak, and it's come to take over our lives. Just like someone turns on the TV and it takes over their life. The TV has no life without the viewer, but it can take over the viewer's life and you've got to go and pull your husband away. Come on, come on. You've got a life independent of that TV? or He's stuck there as a couch potato. And <laughs> what his possibilities are, he's forgotten about it, his obligations, his duties, his happiness and potential and so forth. So we, we've kind of like turned on this machine by our identification with it. We're not one with it. We're not this body. We're not this mind. I mean, what is our mind? And what is our personality that's based on body and mind? The body is based on senses. The senses contact the world, so to speak, what's out there, whatever it is. We touch, we taste, we hear, we see, we smell. Impulses are relayed to the mind, which is kind of like the central computer, and it makes decisions. Some culpa, be culpa. I like this. I don't like that. That's good. That's bad. That's hot. That's cold. It's happy. That's sad. What's the problem with all of this? The problem is, what's good for you may be bad for me. What's happy for you may be sad for me. What's hot for you may be cold for me. So, which is it? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it good? It's all relative. We're not getting at real, conclusive knowledge as to the nature of being. We're getting a filtered experience through the limited and defective instruments of our senses which can't see perfectly, can't hear perfectly, can't taste perfectly. Why? Because we are the seer. We are the taster. We are the hearer. We are the feeler. We are consciousness. Without us, this ear doesn't hear. This eye doesn't see. Right? It's not that because I I can see because I have eyes. The eyes are getting in the way of my seeing. It's not that I can know because I think. Thinking is getting in the way of knowing. What about that? This is like turning a whole, everything upside down for us. a bit. But that's good, actually. We can come out then. We're stuck inside a machine of material nature that we're giving life to, and it's taken on a life as a result of our lending ourselves to it. And we've lost sight of our own life. We're within, and the senses are taking us without and interacting with sense objects and we think we're going to die. It appears in this plane of experience that our existence is threatened. and So we're working hard to secure a life, thinking death is just a thought. It's a big one. And it's just a problem as much as we haven't thought it out. What is the problem? The problem is that the life we've developed for ourselves is one that's based on attachment to things that don't endure. So death is a problem. If you've let go, what's the problem? So, to come out from under this avidya-karma-shakti, in that pursuit lies unlimited possibility for us, the possibility to be what we are. We don't realize the extent to which we exist. That's why we're busy. Trying to secure an existence. If we could understand how much easier our life would be. So to taste the self, satchit ananda, we've got this avidya karma, shakti. It's asat achit nirananda. Asat means it's not real and that it's here today and gone tomorrow. There's existence here, but it's like we don't sometimes consider our dreams so seriously because things just change real fast. And Well, they just last a little longer in the waking state, that's all. <laughs> That's all. But that's just as transient. And we all say it in common English parlance, here today, gone tomorrow, but we don't think about it. So we're seeking enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. You think you'll be successful then in your pursuit? No. We have to seek ourselves. We have to look within. And this way we can end the death problem material nature or the abhidya karma shakti, I said asat. Sat means existence, real. It's unreal, it's illusory. Here today and gone tomorrow. Asat, achit. There's some knowledge in it, but it's false knowledge, it's misleading. The knowledge of material existence. After all, what is the knowledge of material existence? For the longest time they thought the earth was the center of everything. Pernicus came along and gave a different idea, right? And people realized, After some time, we were functioning on a completely wrong premise and we were calling it knowledge. And this kind of thing is found out all the time. Today cholesterol is bad, tomorrow it'll be good for you. (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) So there's some kind of semblance of existence here. There's some kind of semblance of knowledge. But from the broader perspective, it's a non-enduring existence. And the knowledge could just as well be ignorance when looked at from another angle of vision. And how about the ananda, the joy? I said, it's asat, achi, and it's nirananda. Ananda means joy. Nir means like nirvan, like without. It's without happiness. In fact, the happiness of attachment to sense objects is the beginning of our suffering, of our pain. you think about it, in the Gita, you know Bhagavad Gita, famous Hindu text, Shri Krishna says a really nice thing. He kind of sums up this avidya karma shakti in two words. He says, Dukalayam asashvatam. Dukalayam means it says it's full of misery. And the answer comes back, Well but I like it. You say it's full of misery, but I like it. And he says, well, asashvatam, you can't keep it. The more you like it, the worse it is. Do you follow? The more you like something that you can't keep, the more of a problem that you've got. The bigger the, the crash you're going to meet with. So this is the problem, to pursue ourselves, the fullness of ourselves, in relation to the machine of matter, it's like, it's like a virtual reality, you know, this computer thing, it's getting to be a big thing people tell, people get addicted to computer games and they live inside there and so forth, and it's a little scary, but it's kind of like what the influence of this Vidya Karma Shakti is, we're in that kind of a virtual reality. We're running the whole thing, and we projected ourselves into it, and all the problems with it appear to be our problems, like transience and non-existence and fear and, and need and so forth. They don't really exist for us. We are para, like that superior shakti. We're intermediate, but we're like it para because we are a constitute of consciousness. We can exist beneath the cloud of avidya karma or we can come to the other side and live in connection with the sun. So, how to do that then, right? Of course, different people will philosophize about it in different ways and and whatnot, but our particular sadhya or ideal, if we were to compare the Brahman, the great, or Vishnu, as you like, to the sun, we say the sun has rays, use this analogy which we'd be constituted of, it produces a cloud, also, never comes under its influence. We won't go into the reasons why the cloud and everything. It's there. We don't have to figure out why at the moment. We can be sure that it's there and we're under its influence. and We should do something about it. But in the sun itself, there's a kind of an internal shakti. The sun is like exploding, like in a nuclear way. Just really, you know, like there's a big thing going on up there inside the sun. It's like it's not just sitting there still, it's erupting. And just to think about it is a little like, wow. We are so unlike light under the influence of the Savidya Karma Shakti that it's hard to think of living in a nuclear you know, explosion and being happy about it. But as we come out from underneath the influence of matter and start to understand ourselves as a ray of light, then we start to identify with the sun more than with the cloud. There's a likeness to us in the sun which gives us the possibility to start to understand what life in the sun, just using an analogy, of course, is like. It's all these explosions, but what we call it is lila. Lila. I'll give you a contrast. Lila means play, divine play. And karma means work, like prison work, like break, breaking, something like that. So under the avidya karma... We're just like carrying bricks. There's no meaning to it. Carry bricks, carry bricks. Build them up, take them down. Put them up, take them down. We're kind of in an incarcerated state. We've taken and we owe. This is karma. After all, under the influence of the Svidya karma, we have to be exploiters because we don't know how full we are. We're thinking we need to secure our existence. Right? We're not feeling happiness because we identify with matter where there's no happiness inherently in it. So we're trying to get happiness from matter, so we're taking from this machine of material nature, and it has an output that comes back, a reaction, that's karma. So, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, they say. This is our predicament, the material. That we've taken, we owe. We are, they're hunters and hunted. We all live in this, like, not so sovereign domain of the world of our mind. My good is your bad, my happy is your sad. We're at odds with one another, there's only so much to take, and this is not a pretty, it's unbecoming, actually, for us to be in such a situation. Come out from the mind, the limitations. Even of the psychic dimension, as fast as it is compared to the physical dimension, it's limited to come out from that. To come out from that, then free from that influence, is part of the solution, as we see it in our tradition. To remove the negative influence... But then we want to have union with the sun. As we come out, then the prospect of doing that becomes more understandable and more attractive, because we're no longer under the cloud, identified with matter. We're we come from there. We're we're, we're consciousness too. So leela is different from karma. And that karma is obligatory. You've sown, and now you're reaping the result. You're attached, so you've taken, and now you owe. Nature wants. It's satisfaction. And Leela is movement also. And sometimes when it's depicted, mystics experience it is depicted in art or something, it might look just like ordinary life. Like you've seen the picture of Krishna with cows and blowing the flute and dancing with milk maidens and so forth. And, and this is Leela. There's a difference. This is a depiction, of course, by the artist in a particular way. But what it's really talking about is, is that there's a, There's a kind of movement that is not binding. Our movement is binding because it's based on attachment, which is ignorance. Interestingly enough, if we're going to move in the direction of love, we have to move in the direction of detachment, which often looks like, you don't love me. You're letting me go, or or whatever it may be. We're letting you go so that you can better be yourself, actually, and uh, I can be myself also, what, what I really am. So detachment is kind of like abstract love. It comes from knowledge, because if you have knowledge that things are here today and gone tomorrow and you want enduring happiness, you're not going to... Intelligent knowledgeable person is not going to look for it, enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. So detachment is a concomitant of knowledge. And it's the kind of the first phase of love, no longer taking. And as we become detached in the context of bhakti, which we cultivate, with an ideal to enter into the lila, then there's a life of play, so to speak, that is not exploitive, that's not based on attachment. Now, I want to just make a, a short point here to conclude, because we don't have much time for everybody to stay. Some philosophers will reason that our movement in relation to matter is a problem. It's the karma that we're accumulating, and it's keeping us in debt, and so forth. And they reason well. And therefore they say that if you move, you must not be full, you must not be complete. If you're full and satisfied, why move? Therefore they conclude that ultimate spirituality must be still, peaceful, shanti, shanti, shanti. And they also conclude that difference, variety, is a result of the mind making judgments on the world, calling it hot, calling it cold, calling it happy, calling it sad, calling it fat, calling it thin, tall, short, black, white, whatever. These are all mental projections on the environment. And in fact, because this variety is all mental perception, ultimate reality is without variety. And that we are all one. We're not different. We're all one. We're all one pulsating consciousness. There's a lot of wisdom to that. But in our tradition of Vedanta, we go a little further with it. We say there's some a lot of truth to that. But if you're really full, then you have no need to move, right? But you might move anyway. What do we call that? We call that celebration. Lila. Lila. You got it. Exactly. So full, Krishna is dancing. So Brahman reality, the ultimate reality is dancing, moving, playing, not out of necessity, but out of fullness, out of joy. Now, this makes for an ideology, for a, an ideal, a metaphysic and a metaphysical kind of uh, goal in terms of realization in which there's possibility of, of experiencing what we're really all looking for here in this world, which is love. Let me just explain it in terms of love, in another way. We move in this world, we cannot rest, until we find love. And when we find it, what happens then? We start moving again, but in a different way, right? So love has a movement of its own. It doesn't let you just sit quietly. (laughs) It's like a roller coaster, but you can't get off. So this is a kind of idea of ultimate reality that's very exciting, lila, it's dynamic. And it means also that although we are all one, We're not different as we perceive ourselves to be based on the mind. Still, and we're we're one, we're all consciousness, we're at the same time individuals, individual units of consciousness, all of which have a relationship with the supreme reservoir of consciousness. And the interaction between ourselves and that supreme consciousness is a result of coming under the influence of that parashakti. I said there were three shaktis, the secondary or inferior, the intermediate, that we're constituted of, and the superior. So coming under the Shakti, the nuclear explosions in the sun, so to speak, acquaints us with the sun, the life of the sun, so to speak. And so this possibility of unifying with the Absolute is a dynamic unification, what I mean to say. Like if two people, if you and I are in love, then you and I become one, we become we. We is one, but it's not just one, is it? <laughs> it's we. It's a dynamic one. My mind becomes yours. Your mind becomes mine. Something like that. So this is our ideal. This is our goal. It's a very. Uh, it's kind of like saying, the material existence, which is our movement under the influence of the avidya karma, is so different from the ultimate reality that it's similar. There's actually, there's some similarity. like if you go far enough left, you end up, you know, right. And like monkeys in the jungle look like sadhus, you know, saints. They only eat fruits and don't hardly wear any clothes, and, but they're quite a bit different, actually, at the same time. So the material existence is kind of like a reflection, a kind of distortion, so to speak, of ultimate reality. And here we are, we're functioning in one, in a distortion, some philosophers say, well, move away from the distortion and just be. We say, no, go further. There's another side to it. And everything that you want, now you can have when it's properly centered, when you are desire. With desire means movement, right? So desire in relation to Bhagavan, in relation to Vishnu, in relation to the Absolute, now allows us to enter into the life of Leela. It allows the, the finite unit of consciousness to come so close to the infinite reservoir of consciousness, through the force of love, in kind of like yoga that we call it. It's a yoga of love, bhakti, devotion, sacrifice, and love, the whole idea is, it's a, a love yoga. And the power of this love reaches such a pitch that the infinite is conquered by the love of the finite and therefore takes on a finite appearance for the sake of unity. What I mean by that is, if the finite comes close to the infinite, it's kind of repelled. Like, oh my God, I'm coming close to the infinite. What is it? infinite? Is, if I was to tell you I'm God, I'm not. But if I was and I could convince you, you might go, oh my God, whoa. And am going to like, whoa, he's a God. So that doesn't afford us intimacy. So we are interested in going beyond like, the Greek agape, reverential love. We want eros with the absolute, which takes the lust element, the taking out of it, but keeps the the, the possibility of intimacy in place. Do you follow? That's what krishna Leela is about. Have you seen the picture of Krishna and Radha and so forth? That's what this is about. <laughs> because you look at it and you go, Krishna? It's just a, like a little guy and he's uh, herding cows and... It means like, well, the color sham is the color of romantic love, the flute, he has a flute for a reason, and a peacock feather, all these things have, they're all saying something. They're saying to us like, infinite adolescence, you know, the best time of youth and so forth. It's not an old man with a beard on the cloud keeping score or something like that. (laughs) It's kind of an idea. It's a kind of an idea of Godhead that affords us intimacy. So the absolute, the infinite, takes on a finite-like appearance doesn't become finite, but a finite-like appearance for the sake of intimacy. And actually what's happening is the force of the love of the devotee under the influence of this parashakti, rather than the avidya karma shakti, superior energy, superior shakti, the influence of the love of that devotee transforms the Absolute into a form, so to speak, that that he can relate with in intimacy, just like you could with your children, with your... You know, or you try to with your, your lover or your friend and so forth. So, again, it's a kind of um, take eros and take, take the selfishness out of it by directing it to the absolute. And the main, course, way we do that in our tradition is through the power of name and chanting. You know, we do a lot of that chanting. It's a little late for that now. It's just about a couple minutes after 5 o'clock, and I appreciate those of you who had to go at this time for staying. Thank you very much. Any question? And please feel free to go now if, if you have to. That was my short version. <laughs> yes? I also wanted to put this out to go towards your monastery. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any question, any comment, any advice? I'm open. Do you have a gathering like this monthly, weekly? Or? Monthly. I've been doing it monthly. Very nice. It's your home, right? It is. Is it always at your home? Yes. Okay. It didn't used to be. It used to be in Greensboro mm-hmm. at the at art gallery. Where are you all coming from? I have a monastery in Northern California, a couple hours north of San Francisco, is my main base there. What's the name of it? It's called Audarya. It's a Sanskrit word. Audarya. The implication of the word is something like this. It describes the kind of magnanimity and outreach that comes from reaching deeply within. How do you spell it? A u d a r y a. A u d a r y a. Thank you again, mm-hmm. and good night. Drive safely. Mm-hmm. Namaste. I have a question. So, yes. Every religious have the way like a body image. How to uh, show the respect? What about in your service? How to show respect? Yeah, like I'm from Thailand, which is a Buddhist. So when I show the respect to the monk, I have to do this and I have to bow my head. Same. Uh, same thing called the space on the Buddhist to arrive in India. Yeah. Well, Buddhism comes from Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they took some things with them. <laughs> Quite, <laughs> <good>. <laughs> Quite a lot. Quite <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been a Zen student for, call it, quite a long time, so I don't have to come up with a number. And very much, you know, different words, same idea. Right, yeah, right. Same direction. Yeah, very similar. So yeah, we have an honest area in Northern California, and um, we're building one in Costa Rica and in India also. And, um, and also we're looking into building one in uh, Asheville, right here in your home state. Okay. Um, We'll have to keep in touch with you about that as it develops. This is a little bit from my tradition so you'll excuse me but I have two questions. Yeah. You brought up Descartes. You know, I think that's where I am. Yeah. So when I'm not thinking then what? Then you are or that much more. <laughs> 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 yeah. Then your being. <laughs> thinking is getting in the way of your being actually. You know that comes in. The idea of I guess of Descartes is it's not by any means a complete idea, but it's a good idea. I mean, it, it means to say that in human life we wake up to the fact that we exist as not that we didn't before, but by the faculty of mind, and the cognitive faculty that accompanies human consciousness to a greater extent, or human body to a gr- greater extent than animal forms of life, for example, or plant forms of life. One knows that they are. Of course, Descartes considered it because he thought he was, and the animals weren't, and so forth. He, had, he didn't carry it through too far. But, right, I often tell my students that they should stop trying to think about Godi Vedanta and actually practice it. <laughs> and, and for fear, you already answered this question. I have the same question that I ask to every teacher, that, because I do. Hmm. Why do you do what you do? Because it makes me happy. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> That's why everybody does anything, because to the extent that it makes them happy, either abstractly or indirectly, or we have distorted ideas of what will be happiness because we're detached and so we (laughs) we punish ourselves sometimes, but actually the bottom line, if we really sort it all out, everyone's moving for pleasure, everyone's moving for happiness, and we are a unit of that, so... No, we're looking for ourselves. we're just looking for it in the wrong place yes where do we go after we gone from this world? well that depends if you're attached to this plane of experience then you're going to remain in this plane of experience what is this plane of experience it's one where consciousness animates matter and matter moves around consciousness so if you remain attached to that then what's going to happen is just what's happening now the change is going to be a little more dramatic. Like this house is you know deteriorating like all things uh, all the time and at some point where your car is, let's say it's just you know wearing down at some point you decide to sell it. the change is dramatic, but nothing's really changed. you're still driving the car, right So if we're attached to this plane, then we, we remain in this plane. and what is this plane? A plane of experience where matter is constantly in flux. So you're going to get another body, another shape. It's going to correspond with the nature of your attachments and propensities and so forth. You're going to get a psychic and a physical form that corresponds, in many respects, with the the nature of your desire and being that's being formed, if you will, or under the influence of this uh, shakti, maya shakti. Now, what if you become wise, like the Buddha? Buddha said what, that... The problem is in life is suffering, and the, the cause is desire. So he wanted nirvana. Nirvana literally means to blow out, to extinguish. So he wanted to extinguish desire because then he reasoned there'd be no more suffering. We have a little bit of a different idea, which is to change the nature of the desire, but not to do away with desire. But I talked a little bit about that. So at any rate, in either case, the extent to which you become wise as to the nature of attachment and forego attachment based on that wisdom not in a forced way but based on wisdom like fruits fall from the tree when they're ready with a little shake you gotta shake it a little bit or you might have to go up and pick it but it's ready to go if you try to take them beforehand then they're not sweet and so artificially we can't renounce but as Vidya As wisdom awakens through spiritual practice, then detachment is the natural effect of that. When that becomes complete, then you're no longer attached to this plane, so you're not going to remain in this plane, which is a mixed plane of matter and consciousness, right? Where consciousness is mixed up, thinking it's matter. You're going to come to a plane of where the influence of matter doesn't, well, it doesn't have an influence so we call that enlightened life now you we understand in our tradition that there are different degrees of penetration into transcendence and that will depend upon the means by which you overcame bondage of attachment and ignorance there may be different ways to go about it so there are different wisdom traditions there's zen buddhism there's uh, you know uh, Pure Land buddhism there's uh, tibetan buddhism there's advaita vedanta there's Vashistha Dvaita, Dvaita, Hinduism, Vedanta. There's Gaudiya Vedanta, which is our tradition and so forth. All of these have a similar sadhya or goal that is transcendent through the ignorance of attachment, which causes rebirth. That it, ignorance causes rebirth. It's a cycle. Birth and rebirth, birth and rebirth. It's a problem. They've all identified that problem. And they're all different sadhanas or methods to overcome the problem. But the type of method by which you'll overcome the problem will determine the extent to which you become acquainted with the nature of transcendence or enter into it. So we feel that that while there are many good traditions that are ego-effacing and wisdom traditions, at the same time, their practice practices different enough to reasonably conclude that the result will be similar but also nuanced. So there's different possibilities in transcendence. Our ideal is, like I said, lila. It's a little different than... than, nirvana. Than nirvana. Nirvana is kind of... Well, it's kind of like a... I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's kind of a negative theology in a sense. It's like doing away with the problem, with ignorance. Nirvana means... Nir is, neg- is a negative to blow out the fire of desire. That means you're going to be still. Lila is then... For example, like I say, Buddhism is an alcove of Hinduism, so you've got Nirvana, in Hinduism you've got Nirvana, you've got Prakriti Nirvana, you've got Brahma Nirvana, you've got all kinds of different kinds of Nirvana. Our ideal is, we call it praying, love. There's love in all these wisdom traditions, but a lot of the love in the traditions is is the love that's that constitutes not exploiting people. If I love you, I'm not going to explode you. But it doesn't have a lot of positive content, does it? Take compassion. It's a pretty good thing, right? But you can only express compassion in relation to people who are less off than yourself, who need compassion. You see what I mean? It's an abstract form of love in relation to those who are needy. What if you arrive at a situation where no one's needy? Then what? That's why I said we're talking about... Krishna Is talking about everything... That you find in eros, which is such ignorance, but in a divine form, it's kind of esoteric. Hmm? The definitions of compassion is just to connect with. Yeah, to empathy, to identify with the object as oneself. So depends, but the basic point of the wisdom traditions is to overcome the ignorance of attachment, which fosters rebirth to end rebirth. Yes, sir? I've always been curious, someone with the rich background that you've got, last year you were here, and it was a wonderful talk, and really enjoyed it. I'm just curious, it's been a year, and with someone who's had such incredible richness of study and practice, how has your year been in terms of shift? Is there a shift at the level of I'm kind of locked in at this point. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. But it's, uh, at the same time, it's ever-increasing. So It's been a good year. Yeah. So in your tradition, and you chant the name of Krishna. Yeah, we do. And that, just by chanting... I'm, I'm just coming to understanding this because I, I don't really have sure. much background in it. But I went to a... Um, well, I don't know what you call them, a service... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The archies or you went to...? Yes. The archies. Uh, and they were chanting there? You went to a Gita class or when...? I went to a Gita class. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And then we, she gave me some beads and mm-hmm. I had to say, Hari Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari, Hari, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, over, over and over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> she was getting really fast. <laughs> I was trying to keep up with her. But, you know, why the repetition? As I was doing it, I was getting a sense that, um, you know, at first I was just chanting these words, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as I was uh, doing it, I was understanding what was happening inside of my mouth and, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of feeling this, this spirally kind of thing happening mm-hmm. in my energy. And so, yeah, the well, there's chanting a chanting l- of the name and all yeah. that. How do you look at that as a tool for transcendence? Guess, and so? There's different ways to start but One is to talk about it in terms of kind of a technique, which is kind of what you're talking about. It, but, and we can talk about that to some extent. But uh, another way to talk about it is that, as I was saying earlier, our mystics have experienced the Absolute like, like a lover, fallen in love, so to speak, with ultimate reality. Like if you take, for example... Let's say Christ is a manifestation of divinity that represents extreme uh, sacrifice. Mm -hmm. The Buddha is the face of wisdom, of divinity. But Krishna, comparatively, is like the heart, like the playful and like the love life of the Absolute, something like that, which includes wisdom and sacrifice as we look at it. And so when they've experienced this, they've actually fallen in love. And so... As simple as it may sound, when you fall in love, it's common that you'll chant the person's name or sing a song about them. You, you you take their life and in your own way as best you can, or you borrow songs from other people and place your friend's name in there and think about them and your heart you, and express you feel emotions and you become pretty consumed by that. Right? In fact you might even be doing other things and within you know you're seeing everything from that perspective. You're in love you see your lover everywhere and everything reminds, like a person who's like preoccupied with sex, Well, see, every, he always got a sex joke to pull out, you know, he's like, that's where he's at, you know, or she's at. That. So they've fallen in love and so the things in nature even, they remind them and they stimulate this inner spiritual life of transcendent emotion and so, like I say, one of the natural things that a person in love does is is chant. Now, you may not be in love with Krishna, so then somebody says, why don't you chant? They might be kind of in love or they might, might not be either, but they think it's good. They, they've thought about the idea, they've understood kind of the, the theology and the, the philosophy, so they're enthusiastic about it. And they suggest that you chant and then, and then maybe they think of it and then you think of it as a technique and, and it is a technique too, so there's that side of it as well. But in a broader sense, this is kind of what it is. It's, it's an expression its evidence of being in love with ultimate reality the word Krishna means it means all attractive irresistible so it's a spiritual practice that seeks to embrace the heart of the absolute the playful heart of the absolute and so it fosters spiritual emotion and sometimes people chant in this name tears will pour out of their eyes their hairs will stand on end and their body will tremble and they'll falter and change colors and so many things, all kind of transformations internally and, and externally. It has great spiritual power The practice. And in that stage it's really an expression of love. But in the lower stage, what is it? It's kind of like, well, you know, you see these great devotees or you hear about them in the lineage, so you, you want to experience that. And so you take it as a kind of a technique, you kind of like practice love, you know, which is hard to do or practice. But just like if, uh, if a girl knows a young guy uh, likes red and, and she wants to attract him, she ends up at the bus stop the next day wearing red. You know? So she does certain things to attract him. So our whole practice is posturing ourselves in a way as to attract the sympathy and the attention of the heart, the playful heart of reality. And so the Leela, for example, that's full of stories about Krishna, so they're all put to song also, and they sing them. And they sing the name of Krishna, and different names of Krishna. The different names of Krishna relate to different Leelas of Krishna. So they chant the name and they get transported into a sense of the Leela or experience of it in the higher stages and so forth. But otherwise, as a technique in and of itself, you know, repetition of good things is a good thing. So, the repetition, our mind is repeatedly moving in a particular, in, you know, in different directions, unfortunately. And so it's a technique for focusing the mind. And stopping the mind. Ultimately, we're being oppressed by our own mind, which is telling us, "I can listen to him so much, but I've got other things to do too." You know, when is this going to end? I'm hungry or whatever. You know, the mind is distracting us, even in the best of times. And so, it's a practice for focusing the mind. It's very common in many spiritual traditions, like mantra. Now, you know, it's not just an ordinary word. There's, there's inherent power in that. Is when received from a person who has experience of the potential in that, who has experienced that emotion. That's why we generally we receive the name and the honor, so to speak, the opportunity to chant from a teacher who blesses us to chant, so to speak. And then we, under that teacher's guidance, we, we cultivate the chanting and we ask further questions, we get answers and so forth. We become our chanting becomes more informed, like you're getting more informed about it. Somebody give you the beat and say, just try it. Well, that's good too, but more information. So I think as a technique then this uh, repetition of the mantra is meant to still the mind. And um, it's very effective actually. It's very effective. Sit in one place and uh, focus. Repeat the name. The Hari Krishna mantra that she told you—it's actually three names: Hari Krishna and Rama. Mm-hmm. It's like a all in the vocative case. It's like a love song, actually. So Hari is a name. Hari is a name, yeah. Oh. Hari is—it's the vocative for Hari. Hari means to steal, to take away. Hare means oh Hari. It means oh please steal my heart. If you steal my heart, then certainly my mind will follow. This is an interesting point too. A lot of yoga traditions are concerned with controlling the mind, right? Which is important. And I was, we talked about it stopping the mind. Our method for stopping the mind is having the heart stolen. Yeah, so then your mind is automatically captured, right? Because if all of a sudden, even if you fall in love with somebody, your mind is going to go there automatically. Without even, you know, even if you try to think, not think about her or him, it's going to go there anyway. Our method is like this. That's why we're thinking. This is an intelligent thing. to approach the playful heart of the Absolute like this. We have potential for our heart to be completely captured, just like a young girl's heart would be captured by a young boy. Then our mind will automatically be controlled. Our senses will automatically be controlled. This is a very interesting kind of approach. So the name of Krishna has that capacity because it's going to attract the attention of this aspect of divinity, of the Absolute, to us. It has the power to take our heart and make us fall in love. The yogi tries to control the mind and in the condition that we're talking about, sometimes the devotees try to stop thinking about Krishna. They can't. They're frustrated with him in love. You know, love moves like them. sometimes there are lover quarrels. Can you imagine having a lover's quarrel with God? Is what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> anyway. And then Rama? That, that Rama? Yeah, what, yeah. Uh, Brahma means, uh, well, Rama, isn't it Rama? Rama. Oh, Rama. Okay, Rama, Rama, Rama. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of different ways of translating it. This is one way. Hari means, oh, Hari. And Rama means, Ram, Ramiti. It means, it speaks of romantic love, actually. Ram, Ramana. It's like talking to God as if he were a lover, something like that. Rama. Another way it's understood by different devotees with different spiritual emotion, it means, uh, like, um, it indicates great spiritual strength, so it's kind of also an appeal for spiritual strength. And in Krishna means, Krishna, it means like irresistible, like a, kind of like a playboy or something, it's just like he's so handsome, so charming. Krishna, all attractive, irresistible, this is what it means. In uh, Hare also means, in the Vakotipa also indicates... Radha. It can also be looked at in that way. So Krishna and Radha. Radha means is the life of Krishna. Radha embodies the kind of love that makes the absolute into Krishna who's like fall in love. If you catch God when he's fallen in love, then you got him when he's down, you see. Then he's in his weak moment. Something like that. It's a the complex theology, but keep chanting. <laughs> Anyway, I thank you all very much, and uh, you had good questions. And now I guess we have a couple more hours to travel. Is it from here? So uh, we should be on our way. So again, thank you very much. Yeah.